It's 1908, and another railroad car of horses heads east out of Lancaster, Missouri, a small town 10 miles from the Iowa border. The town is known for a local horse dealer who is very good at what he does. William Preston Hall is one of the richest men in Missouri. Seriously, he spends more money on buying and shipping horses per week than a train conductor makes in a decade. Every week, he sells horses by the hundreds to markets in Philadelphia and New York. He even starts selling internationally, making even more money, and the kind of wealth that he, as a poor, illiterate orphan, could only have dreamed of. This piece, this piece is, that is quite an amazing piece of history. County historian Sandra Redding is walking next to his house. It's two blocks from the city courthouse and four blocks from his stables. The stables originally housed his horses and mules, but as Missouri's most famous horse and mule trader travels overseas, his love of exotic animals grows. And so horse trading became animal trading, and barns that once held stallions made room for wild creatures from faraway lands. Sandra says tigers, lions, apes, and monkeys rotate through these barns. In Missouri. Missouri. Ladies used to have crocks, you know, that they put their milk in. And they would put their milk in a crock and set it in the kitchen window, which was always open back then. And that the elephants would come by and suck the milk out of the, out of the crock. In 1908, William Preston Hall became the center of gravity in Lancaster, Missouri. He lived as a legend, known as the horse king of the world, but eventually he faded into obscurity. Welcome to Show Me the State, the program where we explore the strange, misunderstood stories of Missouri's past and try to figure out what really happened why it happened, and how that shaped the state today. I'm Christopher Husted. Before there was William Preston Hall, the horse king, there is Billy Hall, the orphan. Billy is born on the western edge of American society in 1864, right before the Civil War ends. The America of Billy's childhood is divided and slowly drifting westward, while New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia are the business meccas of the world, where Billy will set his eyes on first. Billy is born third into a crowded family of seven children. The Halls are a typical rural farming family of the time, hardworking, self-sufficient, and poor. Young Billy loves horses, like a lot, and starts learning about buying and selling them at the age of 10. Before his 15th birthday, both of his parents and one of his siblings have died. Having nowhere else to go, he takes up work as a farmhand for a neighbor in exchange for room and board. After getting by working in the stables for two years, Billy meets a noted horse trader from Philadelphia in 1881. This is when historian Bob Klein says Billy makes his first deal. And so this young kid by the name of William P. Hall literally bought... 25 horses from the general area and took them on a railroad car and he went with them to Philadelphia to deliver his very first load of horses to a very, very satisfied client. So at this point, he is, William is a 
teenage entrepreneur doing intercity trades or deals. This is correct. He he has just overnight learned that there's a world out there that he's never seen before. And this is a world that he is bound determined he's going to conquer. Accounts differ on Billy's first night in this new world. Some say that his determination and compassion for his animals compelled him to tend to his horses, going so far as sleeping in the stables with them that frigid night, and losing two toes to frostbite in the process. Other accounts paint a picture of a poor 17-year-old scrimping to hold on to every cent, a teenager who would rather lose a couple toes than pay for a room. After his first few deals in Philadelphia, Billy realizes that buying horses for a reasonable price near Lancaster still gave plenty of room for profit in other parts of the world. He sees a way out of a life he felt condemned to, so he goes to work. Over the next few years, Billy's name makes its way into horse trading circles across the country. He sells workhorses, racehorses, show horses, yes, mules too. He even lands an exclusive contract to provide all the horses to the American Express Company. Yes, that American Express, back when it was just Express Mail and money orders. All from Missouri, and all before he was 20 years old. He could pinpoint every little detail on a horse and remember it for, for ages, to the point that some farmers would actually take coloring and try to change the color of the horse so they could bring it back and sell it because they couldn't sell it the first time. And Mr. Hall would be smart enough to recognize, I've seen that horse before, get it out of here. His business grows rapidly during his early 20s. By the time he's 28 in 1892, Billy hires his cousin Ben to help manage the sales load. Two years later, Billy marries his wife Sarah and is spending seven dollars to $10,000 per week buying horses. Keep in mind that this is in 1894. Today, that's like spending $200,000 to $300,000 per week on horses. By 1895, he begins to sell horses in Hamburg, Germany. The year after that, he's selling in London. The earliest photo of Billy is from around this time, in an ad published in the Lancaster newspaper. He's a stout, mustachioed man at around six feet tall. His Monopoly man-like suit may have stood out in this rural farming community, his wool-top hats and tailored black suit jackets. He was nothing but class. He was always in a suit. Uh, you never saw him in a pair of torn-off blue jeans and, you know, a ragged T-shirt. He, he was stylish and class from the day you saw him till the day he was gone. Billy expands his business into Cape Town, South Africa, sometime around 1898. Billy makes about 10 trips to Cape Town over the next few years and supplies the British Army with thousands of horses and mules for the Second Boer War, a conflict in South Africa driven partly over access to the area's diamond mines. It's during these years when Billy undergoes another transformation. At this point, he starts getting some nicknames, right? Certainly, and, and he was known by many different names. Um, most of the people referred to him as Diamond Billy uh, because he always wore diamonds, uh, diamond cufflinks, uh, diamond stick pin in his lapel. Uh, he had a diamond ring, um, and, and a lot of this came from those diamond mines where he simply traded diamonds for the mules. Wow, so he sounds like... 
has some sort of a little flamboyant with his uh, flashiness. Oh, yes. And, and, of course, his favorite moniker, which he used on his letterheads, was the horse king of the world. At some point, the orphaned horse trader from Lancaster, Missouri, left America as Billy Hall and returned as Diamond Billy, the horse king of the world. What was his personality like? What was his reputation? What, what was he like? He was a amicable person to get along with. He welcomed people into his home. They would literally sit at the kitchen table and work out a deal. Um, he helped the community from one end to the other every time that there was a need. Uh, like on the July 4th festivities, he would basically provide everything they needed for the big festival, whether it was tents, seating, uh, wagons, elephants for the parade, whatever. He turned around, he bought the properties from people in the Lancaster area that were struggling, uh, only to let them stay there and pay him a little bit of rent. Um, he provided farmers with the, the best price that they could get for all their grain because he needed every piece he could get to feed all his animals. We don't know exactly why Billy stayed in Lancaster or why he gave so much back to his hometown. Remember, Billy is illiterate. We don't have a diary or letters to read to know what he's thinking or feeling at the time. However, Sandra says one article from the time gives us a credible theory. They said that he had been so poor as a child that the things that he did with his life was to amuse children and make them happy. He also had given away many, many ponies to children in Lancaster. Mm. And if they wanted one, why he would provide one for them under the rule that they would take very good care of it mm. because he did not want any animals mistreated. By now, it's 1904. Diamond Billy has been in horse trading and, excuse the pun, riding high for 25 years. He's going to turn 40. He has a wife and two children, with a third to be born two years later. But he's restless. He wants a new challenge. A trip to the St. Louis World's Fair sparks that fire to expand his empire. Back before the days of television and radio, large-scale reenactments were an important way to portray historical events for your average show. One of these massive reenactments was held at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904, about none other than the Second Boer War. And wouldn't you guess it, Billy provided the horses. It's here that Billy meets a vendor of exotic animals and buys his first two, an elephant named Mary and a camel named Duke. Billy's love for these exotic animals propelled him into the circus business. Billy strikes a deal in September 1904 to buy an entire circus, wagons, ponies, everything, for $10,000. In 1905, he buys another circus for $30,000. Now he needs more animals. The first ones that he got were your, your domestic animals, a couple lions, uh, camels, llamas, that kind of stuff, whatever the, that particular circus had. But his real fascination was the elephants. And over the years, uh, being an elephant historian and keeping elephant records for probably the last 25 years, I've documented over 100 elephants that were on his property at one time or another. Sandra says Billy made Lancaster into a magical place. It was, like, amazing to be a child at that time because you could go to the barns and just walk around and, you know, be around the <laughs> elephants and the tigers, lions, camels, whatever was in there. 
And they said it was like kind of a fantasy world for them to live in Lancaster and just be able to walk down there and see all this. On April 20th, 1905, the great William P. Hall show begins. Billy hires more than 20 people and takes his show on the road, bringing his elephants, camels, and tigers with him. Diamond Billy's business is peaking, and while the getting is good, Billy likely got overzealous. He learned the basic hardships of the circus. You needed publicity. You needed somebody to make a route. You needed somebody to fix the issues and the problems that come up. You needed somebody to acquire the licenses wherever you go. And this was something that he was not prepared for. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Show Me the State podcast on KBIA 91.3 FM. Find more episodes on kbia.org or on any of your podcast apps. Back to the show. When we last checked in with Billy, he just began touring with his circus throughout the Midwest in 1905. During this time, he's still shipping dozens of horses weekly and keeping much of Lancaster employed. He stocks his stables with corn and oats bought from local farmers. He provides steady business for the town's bank and lawyers. And he does business with big-name circuses like Barnum & Bailey and the Ringling Brothers. He hires local workers to work as stable hands at his farm or to join his own circus. When he's in town, he hosts socials at his home two blocks from the town square where he brings out his myriad of animals to entertain his neighbors. The elephants were particularly helpful. They had lots of space and they did walk the elephants and they just kind of roamed around sometimes around town. The elephants did. I've heard lots of stories about the elephants. If someone would get stuck in the road, which was mud back then, they would go get an elephant and pull them out. It seems like William Preston Hall thrived when he is surrounded by animals and entertaining his community. The circus business is the perfect marriage. University of Texas Austin professor, author, and circus historian Janet Davis says with the advent of the railroad, the whole country opened up in a way that led people to crave the kind of entertainment that only a circus could provide. What the circus does is that it actually brings animals and also performers from far-flung corners of the world, aided by the transportation networks that the colonial world was building and then showcasing for American audiences across the country. So Mm. it's this way in which the circus takes the world and compresses it and brings it to people's doorsteps. It's Gene Allen with a herd of ponderous pachyderms, their trunks full of new drinks. Big top circuses like the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey are awe-inspiring, complex, logistical operations. These large circuses can have up to hundreds of animals and a thousand employees at a time. These circuses move people, animals, and equipment across hundreds of miles in a season. They were so coordinated that the U.S. Army traveled behind the circus to watch how they did things, how they unloaded, how they worked with animals, how they fed people. I mean, there's contracting agents all over the place who are working with local merchants, local suppliers to feed this traveling city 
Large circuses would plaster an estimated 5,000 posters per town months in advance of when the circus would arrive. It's a big deal when the circus comes to town, even the smaller circuses that Billy runs. On the hippodrome track, high-jumping horses! Where do the smaller circuses fit into this picture? So the smaller circuses during this era are absolutely a part of the cultural fabric of America. And one of the things that they fulfill is the hunger and the demand for circusing in communities that were not on the big railroad routes. Mm. So one of the things that happens as the biggest shows move to the rails and as big shows start consolidating because they too, like Gilded Age capitalists, are buying other shows. But the smaller shows often traveled still by horse and wagon and they would play smaller communities that would not be on those routes for the larger shows. So they're still enjoying a hefty share of the American circus marketplace. Billy and his circus travel through places like Sedalia and Moberly, into small towns in neighboring states like Atkinson, Kansas and Unionville, Iowa. He's filling the gap left by bigger circuses. Billy could only keep up with the business for a little more than a year. His circus ran from April 5, 1905, until the end of the circus season in August. While he showed a strong business acumen with the horse trade, he grew frustrated and tired with the complications and logistical issues involved with running a circus. And this is before those dark economic days ultimately coming for the country. So he puts his circus up for sale in January. Instead of running his own circus now, he would simply buy circuses and lease them out to other owners. This became his uh, method of operation for the next 25, 30 years, is to purchase and then lease, and purchase and lease and purchase and lease. And as he leased it, a lot of people failed in their leases, and he knew that he got everything back. So he wasn't losing anything. He was gaining the money that he did get from the lease. Uh, maybe it wasn't for the full contract, but he got a little bit of money. And when it was over with, he got his stuff back again, ready to lease again. From 1906 to 1914, Billy bought 11 more circuses to lease out. Over one three-year stretch, he bought 14 elephants, all the while selling or leasing an average of 25,000 horses per year. Allegedly, the Schuyler County Assessor once asked Billy at the height of his success how many dollars worth of diamonds he had. He replied, I don't really know, but I have a quart jar full of them. William Preston Hall's ambition probably led to some of the best years of his life. Before the end of World War I in 1918, horses are the primary method of transportation. Beyond the railroad, the only practical way of transporting equipment and people was by horse or mule until automobiles start coming off assembly lines. The invention of cars and trucks that moved things that horses used to move was increasingly becoming popular because you didn't have the debris on the roads from horses that, you, that the cars and the trucks provided. As a result, with the mechanical age growing more so, more so in, in larger amounts, 
the trucks could move heavier amounts. Uh, the cars could carry five and six people rather than a buggy carrying two. The, the horse kind of lost its flavor. Business for Hall starts dipping over the 1920s. Large contracts with major organizations aren't being renewed. New business dries up. Literal horsepower is being pushed aside for horsepower of cars like the Ford Model T. The sun was beginning to set on the Horse King's empire. But the final blow is the stock market crash in 1929. $30 billion of market value is lost on Black Thursday and the weeks after, the equivalent of almost $400 billion today. It leads to the Great Depression, causing a decade of hardship, of course, across the globe. Money is tight for nearly everyone. One of the first places to cut spending is entertainment. And surprise, the circus is hit particularly hard. And in turn, Billy's whole business model sends him under. With people uh, not being able to pay their bills, they couldn't pay him what he was owed, and he couldn't turn around and pay the banks what he owed them. And so even though he was the, the wealthiest man in Missouri probably at that point in time, he was penniless because he had hundreds and thousands of dollars in assets in animals and land and oil pumps and this, that, and the other, but didn't have a dime in his pocket. Sometime in March of 1932, Billy falls ill. He slowly begins to recover in April, but his business never does. In May, he puts an ad in Billboard magazine putting his animals, wagons, and tents up for sale. On the last day of June, William Preston Hall, Diamond Billy, the horse king of the world, dies. Dying rich in assets, but poor in cash, his family sells off the remainder of their equipment and animals in the years that followed while struggling to pay their remaining debt. Few traces of Diamond Billy remain today. The barns where Billy kept the elephants and other animals have long since been torn down. Many of his direct descendants are scattered all over the country. Even finding his famous diamond ring proves difficult. It's passed through many hands. The population in Schuyler County now is around the same as when Billy died. The county is the fourth smallest in Missouri at about 4,500 people. But Lancaster still remembers him. A mural was painted for Billy on the side of the city's nutrition center in 2000. The already fading art doesn't show Billy, nor his diamonds, nor his Monopoly man physique. It shows his elephants. It shows the magic that he brought to a small Missouri town. A magic that's also faded. And Billy's house still stands. It's now a national historic site. It's being used by the Schuyler County Historical Society, and its president, Sandra Redding, gives tours there whenever she can. Asking about Hall's legacy can get a bunch of different answers. To some, he was the horse king of the world, an entrepreneur who blazed his own path doing what he loved, and in the end, was the victim of a changing world. To others, he was Diamond Billy, a wealthy gentleman with a classic rags-to-riches story who cared deeply about his family and his community. To many, he's no one. But to Sandra, he's more than that. He came from nothing. He was an orphan and he just pushed himself forward enough to where he could 
he gave the whole country something that we might never have seen without him being who he was. You know, most people would not do that. <laughs> they wouldn't try that, and he did. He's just a legend, in my opinion. He's a hidden treasure in Northeast Missouri, and he is truly a legend in his own right. Show Me the State is produced at KBIA at the Missouri School of Journalism. Trevor Hook produced this episode. The supervising producer and reporter is me, Christopher Husted. Our managing editor is Ryan Femuliner. Our theme music was created by Columbia Band Loose Loose. Special thanks to Janet Davis, Bob Klein, and Sandra Redding for speaking with us. Special thanks also to Barbara Woodcock and her husband, Buckles, for speaking with us. And we'd be remiss without thanking one other person for their help. In fact, without their help, we might not have found Billy's story in the first place. My name is Lauren Kramer, and I go to Missouri State University. Lauren is a sophomore studying environmental science. She discovered Billy's story in seventh grade after a suggestion from her mom while making a project for National History Day, a competition held in middle schools around the country where students are asked to make a project around a theme picked for that year. In 2013, the theme was turning points in history. One of the reasons I chose William Preston Hall was because he was in, like his town is my town. And so a lot of the pictures on my website I took and a lot of the firsthand interviews I have, like I was the interviewer. She won first place in the website category in her school with her site, Dust to Diamonds to Dust. She won first place in regionals, first place in the state competition, and went on to nationals in Washington, D.C. The experience stuck with her. So did Billy. He is proof that you don't have to, you know, be special to do something with your life. You don't have to be anybody to be somebody. In his prime, he was a millionaire. You can come from a teeny tiny little town in Northeast Missouri and still travel to Cape Town, South Africa and Germany and all over the world to do amazing things and be an amazing person. But then once you're somebody, like once he made it big, he was still a kind, generous person. He still gave back to his community. Thank you again to Lauren. That's it for this episode of Show Me the State. I'm Christopher Husted. Thanks for listening.